Chapter Four of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four in the Espakaya and Fish Market. I feel compelled to place before the public the real truth concerning the flagrant and unblushing immorality which is so manifest in certain districts of Cairo. I do so with considerable diffidence, since I am only too conscious that my motives in thus writing are likely to be grossly misinterpreted, and that I lay myself open to the charge of being either egotistic or prurient. Much exaggerated reports of the ill behavior of our Australian and New Zealand troops have been circulated through the length and breadth of the Commonwealth and the Dominion. Statements have been made which infer, if they do not actually state, that the great majority of our gallant soldiers were guilty of sins of impurity during the period when they were camped near Cairo. Owing to the nature of my work in the slums of that city, I am better qualified than many to give the lie direct to these reports. I also desire to place before my readers, as plainly as I possibly can, the actual conditions prevailing in these quarters, that they may to some extent realize the terrible temptations to which our boys were exposed, and so be the more disposed to temper their judgment with mercy to those who have fallen. I must, first of all, ask that it be borne in mind that tens of thousands of British, Australian, and New Zealand troops were stationed in and near Cairo. In every large body of men there will be necessarily a proportion of rotters or wasters. Five percent of these make more disturbance and create more rumor than the remaining ninety-five percent who live clean, wholesome lives. To reflect on the morality of a large majority because of the immorality of a small minority is not only foolish, but wicked. I here deliberately state that in a previous ministry of nearly seventeen years, I have not met so many noble men in the same space of time as I have during the eighteen months I have been privileged to be a chaplain with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. The very best of our youth are to be found in the ranks, men of culture, refinement, and religion, who despite their environment rose superior to it, and by their manly, clean, wholesome lives did good to all to whom they came in contact. In justice to these, I feel it my bounden duty to justify the larger proportion of our men from the cowardly innuendos hurled at their heads by armchair critics who hadn't the grit and go to do what those they so freely criticize have done, resign the comforts of home and fight, in many cases unto death, for king and country. I know Australia from north to south, from east to west. There is scarcely a town of any size which I have not visited. Nearly twenty years ago I worked among the all classes of men throughout Australia and consequently know personally the social conditions of that great country. I have also travelled New Zealand from the North Cape to the Bluff. Realizing, therefore, the favourable moral atmosphere in which the majority of our colonial boys have been brought up, and knowing, as I know, the new, startling, and all but overwhelming temptations of an eastern town, especially a city which bears such an ill repute as Cairo, I say that to me the marvel is not that so many, but so few fell. We arrived in Zaytun on or about the 4th of December 1914, and before a week had passed, tales, more or less exaggerated, were being told of the fearful prevalence of vice in its very worst and most revolting forms. The notorious Waza, the sights to be seen there, the shamelessness of the women, the effrontery of the pimps, became common talk. Realizing, to some extent, the awfulness of the situation, 
and the crying need that something should be done for our boys, I consulted Chaplain Major Luxford, the chief chaplain of the NZE force. He is an officer for whom I had and have, though in an increased measure, a high opinion, and in whose judgment I repose the greatest confidence. His opinion was that we as chaplains should rebuke this vice whenever occasion served, but should personally abstain from visiting the slums. I understood the reason that led him to this opinion, but was still, in my own mind, far from being convinced that he was right. So, in deference to his wish, I desisted for a fortnight from going near the notorious streets. However, one evening, whilst reading my Bible, these words of the Master rang insistently in my ears. I am come to seek and to save that which was lost, and coupled thereto, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. In these words I recognized what the Duke of Wellington termed my marching orders. I knew, as Major Luxford had hinted, that my motives would be liable to be misconstrued, and while I thought over the matter, was much inclined to choose the path of least resistance. I remembered how it was prophetically stated of the Lord Jesus that he became the song of the drunkard, and was called, and deservingly so, the friend of publicans and sinners. He not only made himself of no reputation, but lost all reputation from the viewpoint of the religions of his day, and I, since the servant cannot be greater than his master, must be content in seeking to follow in his steps, to lose my reputation as he lost his. A business or professional man may forfeit his moral reputation and yet not suffer materially, but let a minister of religion have but the faintest breath of slander dim the luster of his character, and he were better dead. It was thus no light matter to me when I deliberately planned labors which I knew must inevitably expose me, in no small degree, to the malice of evil tongues, and which might wreck my whole future. On New Year's Day, 1915, a friend, a captain in the NZMC, asked me if I had seen the slums in the Espakaya, and on my replying in the negative, volunteered to drive me through them. That drive was an eye-opener. I knew that things were bad, but not how bad. It was a nightmare, inconceivably vile and horribly grotesque. The narrow, evil-smelling, torturous lanes literally lined by these poor, degraded women of almost every nationality. The foul cries of solicitation sounded in a veritable babble of tongues. The barbaric dress and ornaments which many of them wore, the flaring lights, the flaunting evils, all combined to produce on the mind of a European an impression of unreality. Things could never be as bad as this, one argued, and therefore it must be a dream. But it was no dream. It was an infinitely awful reality. Each nationality seemed to rival the other in bestiality. Arabs, Egyptians, all Mohammedans, no Coptic girl is to be found earning her livelihood by prostitution, Circassians, Greeks, Syrians, Nubians, French, and Italians were all represented. Thank God, however, there was not one British woman in that motley throng. The government immediately deport any fallen English girl. For over half an hour, we drove as fast as possible, through street after street and lane after lane, before we were clear of the shrieks of invitation the coarse clamor, and the unspeakable sights of that veritable hell on earth. Tennyson sings, Things seen are mightier than things heard. I had thought the work to which I had been determined to put my hand would be difficult, but I did not realize until I had actually seen it for myself the full immensity and hideous awfulness of the task. 
a feeling of impotence crept over me. What could I, single-handed, do against so many? Could anyone hope to combat, with any prospect of success, the rampant evils of these foul quarters? One could but try. Success lay in God's hands. From that day when I first had a vision of the exceeding sinfulness of the sexual sins of Cairo, with but few unavoidable exceptions, I spent four hours each evening on three and sometimes five nights a week seeking to stem the foul tide of immorality that threatened to overwhelm so many of our soldiers. I made a point of doing this work on those nights which immediately followed the arrival in Cairo of fresh troops, whether British, Australian, or New Zealander, and on leave nights. Various causes have contributed to making the Saturnalia of lust so inexpressibly evil as it was at the time which I write. These hapless women flocked into the city from Port Said, Alexandria, the country towns of Egypt, and from lands over the sea to prey upon the thousands of British and colonial troops. Cairo, long before the latter's arrival, had always been a haven of refuge, a last resort for the demi-monde of the various seaports of the Mediterranean. Two pages of text deleted at suggestion of censor. What is the number of these unfortunates? That is the question which has often been put to me by those who knew the kind of work in which I have been engaged. I can only speak approximately of the actual numbers in Cairo. There are, I believe, on good authority, 2,300 licensed native women and over 800 licensed European women. Exactly how many unlicensed native and European women ply their unholy trade, no one can say. Certainly they must number thousands. These licensed women, European and native, are for the most part herded together in a small area within close proximity to the most fashionable quarter in Cairo. Were it possible to give the exact total of all the licensed and unlicensed women, I am persuaded the British world would stand aghast and with one voice demand that the city be purified. Unlicensed women are everywhere, in the pensions, in hotels, and in the hundreds of liquor bars which infest the city. Despite the vigilance of the police, they infest the whole community in city and suburbs alike. I do not desire to discuss at length the pros and cons as to the advisability of the Egyptian system of registration of these licensed women, other than to say that in my opinion more have fallen as the result of these women's being able to assure the men that they were healthy and backing their assurance by the production of a certificate than through the unlicensed women who far outnumber their more favored sisters. The examination of these women must be necessarily perfunctory owing to the thousands who report themselves weekly or fortnightly for that purpose, and the limited number of medical men available for that unpleasant duty. Such an inspection may to a limited extent prevent the spread of disease, but that is all that can be claimed for it. Any specialist in this particular form of disease will admit that the absolute impossibility of pronouncing any woman to be free from venereal complaints unless a lengthy bacteriological examination extending over many days has been undertaken. If this is not done, and if certificates are issued after what is necessarily an inconclusive inspection, the result is only to lull men into sinning under a sense of fancied security. Scores of men have confessed to me that it was by the production of these certificates that they were induced to yield to the entreaties of the licensed courtesan. All the present evils were accentuated by the fact that over 30,000 Australians and New Zealanders, a number which was afterwards, of course, considerably increased, 
were suddenly quartered within easy reach of the city of Cairo, from lands where, happily, few sexual temptations prevail, they were plunged into the vortex of a notoriously evil oriental city, cooped up in transports for from six to eight weeks, under what to them was severe discipline. Is it to be wondered at that the reaction was great, that a certain proportion, loosed for the first time from the restraints of home and of a Christian land, should plunge into excess? that, rejoicing in their newfound liberty, they should turn that liberty into license, that, withheld from the use of intoxicants for weeks, they should, in a city where nearly every shop sold liquor, drink to excess? The greater number, nevertheless, I repeat, behave themselves as worthy representatives of their respective colonies. Over and above the causes which I have mentioned as contributing to the sad condition of affairs in Cairo was the liquor traffic. Had immorality been the only foe, the fight would not have been one-tenth as stern as it proved. I speak advisedly when I state that nine-tenths of the men who fell did so under the influence of strong drink. Alcohol anywhere tends to produce immorality. This is more evident in Cairo than in any other place where I have been. Pure alcohol is surprisingly cheap. In the Espacaya and fish market, there are numberless bars. In one street, there is one every few yards. The liquor sellers act in many cases in collusion with the keepers of the houses of ill fame, and freely permit the latter to use their bars as places for solicitation. Despite statements made to the contrary, I am fully persuaded, as the result of my own experience in noting the effects produced on our men, that the liquor has been doped or drugged. I have seen men who assured me that though they had only drunk two or three glasses, they had become stupefied and remained in a comatose state for hours. One case I remember in which a man, a strictly moderate drinker, took but two glasses of whiskey and was, for eighteen hours afterwards, in a state of absolute insensibility. The effect produced, as I noted it, was to induce the normally moral man to become temporarily immoral. I have time and again seen men walk into a liquor bar as sober as men could be and after one or two drinks behave like sexual maniacs. I have, not once, but scores of times, followed these men into the houses of ill fame and found them in a state of insensibility or temporary insanity, and have by sheer force, before they could come to any harm, either carried or supported them out of the brothels, and sent or accompanied them to the railway station by cab or car. One evening, I was standing near a house of ill fame in the Espacaya, seeking to prevent, and to a great extent succeeding, in preventing, men from entering, when I noticed a young, fresh-faced New Zealander enter a bar nearly opposite. He was not there more than about ten minutes when he came out, evidently under the influence of liquor, accompanied by a big Berber who was piloting him to the evil house, for which he was a pimp or tout. I followed them, but... When I had passed a turning in the lane, finding they had evidently turned down a side alley, I turned to my left, and was in time to see a door being shut. I put my shoulder against the door, burst it open, upsetting the woman who had closed it, and, entering, saw the New Zealand boy lying on a low bed insensible, his head nearly on the floor, whilst the Berber was searching his hip pocket. I promptly gave the robber a kick, which sent him to the floor, and turned to place the soldier's head on the pillow. 
As I did so, the Berber rose and rushed at me with a drawn knife. I stepped aside and caught him under the jaw with my right fist. He stopped rather suddenly and gave me no further trouble. The woman flew at me and, before I could prevent her, scratched my face rather badly. When I had induced her to leave me alone, I picked up the man, carried him into the Wag Alberca, 200 yards, I suppose, away, and sent him in a cab to Zaytun. He told me, next morning when he regained consciousness, that he had no recollection of anything that had transpired since his second glass of beer, and that two beers comprised all the drinks he had had that day. The GOC, General Maxwell, was responsible, I believe, for ordering the compulsory inspection of liquors. The contents were analyzed, and it shows how greatly adulteration was practiced. When the Egyptian mail, some months after this inspection was instituted, stated that 37% of the liquors analyzed were adulterated. I am glad to say that this inspection, whilst it did not, as was scarcely to be expected, entirely abolish the doping, exercised a by no means inconsiderable effect in ensuring that the soldiers had purer liquor. Certainly, the number of those who were rendered temporarily unconscious as a result of the use of liquor considerably decreased. I strongly suspect, however, that in some cases, if not in many, the drug, whatever it was, was not in the bottle of beer or whiskey, but was added to the beer when it was in the glass, and consequently no analysis of the liquor in bottle or bulk would reveal its presence. This suspicion I have heard expressed by many soldiers who did not hesitate to state that they must have been drugged in that manner. This unholy alliance which exists between the liquor seller and the prostitute is by no means confined to Egypt. I know of many cases in London and other English cities. One thing is certain, banish the liquor, and before six months have passed, nine-tenths of the unfortunate women would have to seek an honest means of procuring a livelihood. Hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers fall only because liquor has first benumbed their judgment, lessened their self-control, deadened their consciences, and quickened their passions. End of chapter 4